0: Going to be the most uh, unusual one of the series. Uh, and, well, I'll explain why. We're going to cover six chapters in one sermon. So, <laughs> it does make sense. I'll explain why it makes sense in a moment. Um, uh, it, this, this will be the only time we do something like that. It's not just for pragmatic reasons, it's, for, uh, it's in terms of understanding the book as much as anything else. Um, but I just want to recap, first of all, in terms of where we're up to in the book of Revelation so far, just very quickly so that you are um, fresh in, in your mind. Um, obviously, the book is written by um, the Apostle John, one of the original 12 disciples, around about AD 90, AD 92, from the Isle of Patmos, where he's on exile um, for his faith. Um, he was the only one of the 12, um, well, only one of the uh, 11, not to be martyred, not to be killed for his faith, um, but ended up doing hard labor on the mining island of of, uh, of Patmos. Uh, if you Google image Patmos now, you'll, you won't get the right idea. It's just a beautiful Greek island. You'll be like, hey, that looks okay. Um, it, was a, it was an island where, where the Romans would send people for hard labor, most likely in the mines. So, John at this point is a very old man who is in a, in a labor camp. That's the situation that he is in personally when he receives this vision, this revelation. There's this amazing vision of the risen Lord Jesus, which causes this man who's incredibly close with the Lord to fall on his face as though dead. The glory of Jesus is such, um, and particularly there are seven. There are seven uh, churches in the A- in the region region of Asia that are. Um that, was that asia was a name given to one of the roman provinces in those days it's not for us it's the huge continent the province of asia was it's kind of modern day turkey that kind of area and there were 10 churches there but particularly there were seven that are uh, highlighted in this ch- in this letter that, that the revelation is written to some very specific things for those churches and then and then john's vision is lifted up to the throne room and in revelation 4 and 5 we see this incredible vision of glory And the two main things coming through are God reigns and Jesus wins. We looked last week at the fact that Jesus wins and therefore, as a result of that, um, he has been considered worthy to open the scroll. There's this scroll in the right hand of the one on the throne that he's got right on the front and on the back and that is sealed with seven seals. And it represents the purposes of God in history, represents all that God is doing in history. And um, who is found, who is worthy to open the scrolls? And no one is found in uh, above the earth, on the earth and under the earth. And then one one is, one is found, the, the line of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ. He takes a scroll uh, from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And now what we're going to do um, uh, today is look at the opening of those seals. Now, why are we going to look at six chapters uh, together? Well, here's the thing. Uh, between chapters 6, which is where we're going to start today, which is where we're up to, and chapter 16 in the book of Revelation, follow me here, <laughs> Between chapter 6 and 16, we have the seven seals on the scroll. We have also seven trumpet blasts and seven bowls of wrath poured out from heaven. Interspersed with these various sevens are other happenings that we will be preaching on over the next few weeks, interspersed with them. But we will not be going through the book sequentially. We will not be going through, this, for example, the seven seals and then something else happens in chapter 7, and then there's a trumpet blast, and then something else. We're not going to go through it week by week by that, but for good reason I'm going to explain, I'm going to explain why. The way we are uh, interpreting this book, and we do so with humility, recognize it's not easy literature at all, but fundamentally we believe the most um, meaningful and, uh, way that makes the most sense to interpret the book is to view the seven seals, the seven trumpet blasts, and the seven bowls of wrath as fundamentally speaking about the same thing. Which means that the book of Revelation, rather than operating chronologically, more operates in spirals, if you like, or swirls. And I'll show you why we think that uh, in, in just a moment. If you try to approach the book sequentially from start to finish, you hit big trouble. You end up, suddenly things don't start working, when so it becomes very, very confusing. Have any of you ever tried to read through Revelation and found yourself confused? Yeah, well, partly that it could be, uh, there's lots of reasons why that could be, but one of the reasons may be that you've tried to go it and try to understand it chronologically, but it doesn't seem that it's actually written in, uh, in that way. Uh, it's much easier to view the because as a series of repetitions until we get to the creation of the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 21. And let me just show you what I mean quickly. If you've got a Bible with you, and you've, if you turn to chapter 6, verse 12, I'll read to you a couple of verses, 12 to 14. Well, we're going you know, to work through all this in just a moment, but I want to just demonstra- use this as an example to demonstrate why it doesn't work. It says, When he opened the sixth seal, I saw, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that was being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Okay, so we've got... Something going on there with, we've got um, the imagery being used is that the sun losing its uh, light and stars falling to the ground and the sky being rolled up. And it's very much, you know, it's kind of eschatological, it's the end kind of language. But that's what's going on there. If you then turn to 8, chapter 8, verse 12, we've got one of the trumpets here, the fourth trumpet. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened. Hold on a minute. The sun's already but the sun 's already turned black and lost its light back out there with the seventh seal with the sixth seal. How can it happen again at the fourth trumpet? If you then go on to chapter sixteen verse eighteen, now we 're on the bowls of wrath. Um, there were flashes of, this is the seventh angel point at the bowl of wrath. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Uh, and we are told every island fled away and no mountains to be, were to be found. But we already had that in chapter 6. It's just, it's, it's, it doesn't make sense. Not only that, what you find at the end of the, each of, of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, you find some reference to the end, to the return of Jesus Christ. And so really, a much more sensical way to read it make, makes most sense is to read these things as repetitions of the same thing that are going on. Does that make sense? So that is why we are going to look at the seven seals, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls in, the same, in, in one sermon because we're fundamentally, I believe, looking at, the same, looking at the same thing. Now how I'm going to go through So I'm going to read chapter 6. Make reference to chapter 7, read a few verses from chapter 8, and then make references to the rest of the way through to chapter 16. It, will not, it is not as long and laborious as it sounds. Okay? I know how it sounds. Don't worry, it won't be like that. Um, so, but let's start by reading chapter 6, and let's ask for God's help. Father, I just pray that this message, this sermon today, as unusual in its structure as it is, and uh, as much as there is to take in, I pray that it, w- it would have a penetrating impact. Uh, It would really help, I pray, I pray, Lord, that people would really be helped through it. Really be helped to understand you, understand their own life, understand creation and what we see around us. Lots of wisdom would come, I pray, as a result of this. And I even pray for salvation to come. I even pray, Lord God, for people that are in the room, that currently feel very cloudy spiritually, don't know what's going on. I pray for the clarity of the gospel to shine through into their heart. And to really bring them to life in you. They will find new life in Christ today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, let's read chapter 6 together. So the Lamb has taken the scroll from the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. That's where we're up to. Chapter 6. Now, uh, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. So that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword when he opened the third seal, I heard the li- third living creature say, "Come," and I looked and behold a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, "A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine." When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, "Come," and I looked and behold a pale horse, and its rider 's name was death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill. With sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw the, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been when he opened the sixth seal I looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, call into the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Then we get Chapter seven, which is between the seal six and seal seven. We've just had six seals broken on the scroll, and then we get chapter seven which is an interlude. Suddenly the, the scene changes and we, have a, we are opened up into a view of great glory where a particular number of God's people are sealed or stamped or marked, um, uh, which is a theme that develops throughout the book. Uh, keeping them for God amidst all the judgments that are happening on the earth. We'll focus on this chapter next week for our nation Sunday, because it's massively relevant for that. Now we're going to read the first six verses of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake. That's the seventh seal. The seventh seal involves silence for half an hour, uh, followed by the giving of seven trumpets to seven angels. From the rest of chapter 8 through through to chapter 9, we read about the seven trumpets being blown. And what's experienced on the earth is hail, fire and blood, resulting in a third of the world's trees being destroyed. And grass, followed by a burning mountain falling into the ocean and turning the sea to blood, destroying a third of sea creatures and ships, followed by a star falling from heaven and turning the water of a third of the earth's rivers and springs to bitter wormwood, followed by a third of the light of the sun, moon and stars being darkened, followed by the bottomless pit being unlocked and an army of stinging creatures attacking those who haven't been sealed for God, as in chapter 7, followed by the release of four bound angels, resulting in the gathering of a mounted army of 200 million being released to kill a third of mankind. After these six trumpet blasts, uh, we are told in chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Then in chapter 10, we have seven thunders, but John is not allowed to recall what the seven thunders refer to or what they mean. But he is given a scroll and he's commanded to eat it and then prophesy about what will happen to many peoples, nations, languages and kings, which is exactly what happened to Ezekiel. He's given a scroll, told him to eat it, but told to prophesy judgment over Israel. John here is told to eat a scroll and then prophesy judgment, but not over just Israel, over the entire world, every nation and people group. Um, So we got judgment on a global scale. Then in the first 14 verses of chapter 11, we have two witnesses who operate in the spirit of Moses and Elijah. It's said of them that they have the power to shut up the sky, as Elijah did, and power to turn water to blood and strike the earth with plagues, as Moses did. The context for those witnesses is unrepentant humanity, and so their witness is not popular, and there is huge celebration when they finally are killed by the beast, um, Being uh, people give gifts to one another in celebration that these witnesses of God have finally died. Then the latter half of chapter 11, we have the seventh, seventh trumpet blown and the announcement of the establishment of the kingdom of God and Christ on the earth. In chapters 12 to 14, which Dan will preach on in two weeks' time, this is primarily focuses on the casting down of Satan and the rising up of the two beasts uh, on the earth, as well as the introduction of the idea of Babylon and its fall. And then in chapters 15 and 16, we have a fresh vision of heavenly glory with overcoming saints singing the song of Moses. And we have seven angels carrying seven plagues that seem to be placed in bowls, seven bowls of wrath. And, uh, and they are revealed. And what we are told... Um, Sorry, that with these bowls, the wrath of God is finished. We see worldwide devastation with them. First, we see harmful and painful sores. And all the worshippers of the beast. Next, every living thing in the sea dies. Next, the rivers and springs become blood. Next, fierce heat scorches the people. Next, an agonizing darkness comes on the people. Next, the river Euphrates dries up, preparing the way for a demonically inspired worldwide army to gather for the Battle of Armageddon. And finally, the hugest earthquake to ever hit the earth happens. The cities of the nations fall. Every island flees. No mountains are to be found. And huge hailstones batter the planet. The end, so far. Um, I'd like to say five things. Um. (laughs) How do you preach on this? I mean, (laughs) I've I've been asking myself that a lot of the week. Um, I think it's totally the right way to approach it like this. It's kind of like, what, what do you do with that? What is going on? What is going on there? So I'm going to just try and make some uh, massively practical points, but through it try to make sense of some of this huge stuff. Is that okay? I think that's probably the cleverest way to go about it. Um, The first thing I want to kind of ask the question is this. Do these things, these terrible plagues that happen, do they happen to just those who haven't been sealed by God? Right? So, does everyone on the planet experience this stuff, or is it just those who kind of worship the beast, just those who haven't been marked by God? It's an interesting question, because some of the seals, blasts, bowls do seem to be like that. Some of them refer to, you know, sores and blisters and boils on those who worship the beast, um, and others on those coming on those who haven't been sealed, haven't been marked by God. But others don't. Others seem to be more general. So when the rider on the pale horse is given authority over a quarter of the earth, to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence and wild beasts. There's no asterisk by it. See footnote, except if you're a Christian, you won't experience this. It's not there. Okay, So I think it probably would make more sense with um, those where it doesn't say so to assume that if you're in that part of the earth, regardless of whose side you're on, you will face it. I think that's probably the most sober way of approaching it. Everyone's looking really happy here. Um, let me just give an example from the Bible so you see what I mean. Um, in the book of Acts, we, we see the churches in the Mediterranean world taking up offerings for the church in Judea who suffer famine. So There's a famine that the church in Judea suffers. Um, and you, you can put it down to the power rider, if you like. Um, The the church's, the the, the believers' response around the world isn't, well, the church in Judea will be fine because they're believers, they're marked, they're sealed. No, they take up an offering to help them through it. And so the the believers face the same difficulty and they face uh, the same trial, but they experience something of the kingdom through it, through the generosity of the other churches. Does that make sense? So the kingdom is still, the kingdom is still being worked out. But because the kingdom hasn't fully come, believers still experience the difficulties and trials and pressures that are going on around the place. Uh, so, the, so the issue is, is that saints will face these things, but wh- what will mark them out is their response. That's what will mark them out, is there, whether there's peace, whether there's trust, whether there's steadfastness in the face of it or whether they crumble. Because our hope is in something else, and so I think it's important that we have to acknowledge that many we are on the planet, we're on Earth still, and we're going to face these things. Um, uh, but we we understand there's meaning behind it. We understand that God is involved. We understand that we we understand that it's the breaking of the seals. It's the it's the fulfilling of God's purposes of judgment on on the Earth. And and, and it's all linked in with the the, the birth pains of creation, longing, waiting for that day, that great day of liberty, which we'll be looking at when we get to the new heavens and the new earth in in the last part of the book. But we will face these things. And it's actually forewarned is forearmed, as the saying goes. It's better to have a couple of sober moments where you just hear that, you think, okay, right, rather than sort of pretending that's not the case and having the rug pulled out from your feet when suddenly things happen on a national scale. Sometimes even on a global scale, and, 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 and we're a part of it. So, it's, you know, I know many, many Christians' businesses struggled during the economic downturn. You know, lots of you know, Christians lost their jobs, Christians' businesses didn't work out so well. How do we deal with that? You, you can't just be expect to be immune from these things, but you find God in it. You find His provision in it. Sometimes in very surprising places, you find His peace in it. You find massive growth and development. You find breakthrough in it. You find ways through in it. There's a whole kingdom thing that kicks in, but you're in it. Is that okay? Yeah. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say is 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 the whole idea, the whole thing of prayer. You see this, you see this introduction, this idea of this incense, which is the prayer of the saints. So in the throne room of God, there's this incense, the prayer of the the, the prayer of the saints, and it's mixed with, in, in these bowls with various judgments and the things poured out. And you think, well, wow, what? Somehow these prayers of the saints. So Tuesday morning, as unglamorous as it is, those prayers that we're offering up to the Lord, they, they are themselves part of the process of God working out his purposes on the earth. You, and I don't know how to say this in a way that is uh, convincing or persuasive, other than to just say that the Bible teaches that prayer changes things, and there are verses in the Bible that are so provocative about prayer that it really, you've got to stop and say, what does that mean? Verses like, you do not have because you do not ask. So therefore, that means because some people have taught, Christian teachers have taught things like, you know, prayer doesn't really change things; it just changes us. Yeah, it doesn't change circumstances because God's got it all planned out. It just changes us. Now, I absolutely believe that prayer changes us. Of course, sometimes you come to God in your prayer, and, and He just through that process He works on your heart, and you realize, God, I'm praying so selfishly. Or I'm praying with such unbelief. I'm so, I'm so, my mindset is so small. I'm, just, I'm just not even praying. I'm just worrying out loud. You know, you, you realize these things, and God, just in His mercy, just He changes you absolutely. But I don't think for a moment you can say therefore prayer doesn't change circumstances. It's just not true, it's not biblical, it's what, it's what the theologians would call hyper-Calvinism. It's a kind of the, the, that way of thinking that says every, everything is so planned out that there's no such thing as real dynamic interplay between us and God in prayer. It's not a biblical idea. Time and time again we read of people uh, moving God's heart in prayer in extraordinary ways to the extent it says things like God changed his mind in that moment. You find it time and time again. Twice in the Bible it says God doesn't change his mind. There's about 15 instances where he does. How does that work? Well, he doesn't change his mind like we do. We change our mind because we don't quite see it right. We've got blind spots. We, didn't a, we thought we'd do that and we haven't got enough money or whatever. So we change our mind. Right? God doesn't change his mind like that. But God's heart is moved when his people pray to the extent that he will do things that otherwise would not have been done. Which somehow, were, uh, was, it, was it all planned for eternity? Oh, don't, don't ask me, it's mysterious. I, I totally believe in the sovereignty of God. Absolutely, I really do. But I, I, there's a, the, when we interact in prayer with God, it is doing something. And it is kind of mixing together with the purposes of God and those things coming together, the decrees of God, God's heart being moved by our prayers, those prayers of the saints going up into his nostrils is a pleasing thing. He works out his purposes on the earth. That means we've got to pray. That means that it's contingent on us to pray. I would go as far as to say it is our duty to pray. Because sometimes it's a delight, sometimes it's just jolly hard work. But because it's our duty, it's just really helpful. That means I'll do it regardless. Right? Because I'm, this is a bigger than about how I'm feeling today. This is bigger than about what kind of week I've had. This is the purposes of God on the earth. And even if my prayers just feel like words, and God, you just think, "Oh Lord, this, this you know, this is really not impressive." The fact that we take our place before His presence and pray individually, corporately, with one another, running partners, that we do that—I tell you—it makes a difference. Yeah. And i to urge you to see that and to take that to heart and to let it speak to God. Yeah, speak to God. You've got access to His presence through Jesus. Speak to Him; it makes a difference. Second thing. Third thing. An understanding of what witness is. We've got, in chapter 6, we've got these martyrs, and we're told that God's not going to avenge their blood until their number's completed. So there's more to come. In chapter 11, we have these two witnesses that, 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 that operate in this incredible prophetic power. And there's something of a theme that develops through the book of Revelation, uh, whereby on quite a fundamental level, true Christian witness is not popular in the eyes of the world. It's a thing through revelation. Read it through, you'll see it. True Christian witness, the word for witness is where we get our word martyr. (laughs) True Christian witness is not popular in the eyes of the world. Now, I don't say this in order for us to develop a paranoid persecution complex or anything of the sort. As children of Abraham, we've been called to be blessed by God and to be a blessing. Amen. A blessing to our neighborhood, to our colleagues, to our community. We are absolutely called to be a blessing. Jesus calls us a light of the world. We're to go and be a blessing. And I do believe by God's good grace that we have been. Okay, so I totally, totally believe that. And yet, we mustn't be naive. Making friends and serving the poor is a part, but not all, of our witness. To speak of Jesus clearly and boldly is absolutely essential if people are to find salvation. And this will not always be applauded. I just need to say it. I know some of you are such incredibly bold witnesses. I know some of you are just such wonderful, wonderful, you know, you speak of Jesus. And... Um, it's God's desire for a body of people that, that, that speak of Jesus. Do you know what? The truth is, is that on, when you really speak about Jesus, it's never popular. It's never always popular. The Bible's really clear. To some, we are the smell of life. People hear Jesus think, ah, oh, that's it. Others, oh, it. it's the stench of death. It's like Man. Sometimes you get those moments where you, you say something and it's like, wow, it was amazing. You know, I had this great moment, great moment of boxing on Thursday. Just it was one of those God moments. It just came out of nowhere. You know, I always try to pray intentionally on the day before I go to training, say, Lord, just give me opportunities. And it was just, you know, in the changing room. And some guy just said, oh, my car just got bashed up. I've just got back from holiday and I need a holiday. You know, those moments. And I just found myself, yeah, because he was sort of saying about that, what do I do? Just go back from holiday and need a holiday. And I just found myself saying, you know, it's so much better. When you, you, when you know Jesus, you can, you can work from a place of rest rather than just always trying to look for rest from work. You know, God just, you know, sometimes God just helps you to just say things clearly. And he just looked at me and he just said, he said, you know what, when you said that, something just went, something just happened in my heart. I was like, wow. <gasps> One's ever said that to me before in the changing room. <laughs> yeah. something just happened, it's just amazing, amazing. You, you get these moments where it just, you know, it's the smell of life. It's just to make people like, oh, yeah, you know, it's just wonderful. There are other times where, you know, I remember being in the playground at school once, dropping off the kids, some guy asked me what, what I did for a living. And I sort of told him, and just the, the air just went cold. It's like Narnia, you know, Narnia all of a sudden, you know, always winter, never Christmas. It's like, oh, it's really sad. And he had nothing else to say, and, and I didn't. I probably mumbled a few things. And then, um, and then we said hello awkwardly to each other for the last few years. Um, ever since, because it's just, it's like, no, don't. It's that, and it's that. And, and we've just, we just got to, we just got to, settle that in our hearts, really, if we're going to witness. Otherwise we go quiet. We mustn't go quiet, church. We mustn't go quiet. We've got the greatest news ever. It's, you know, wow, we've got the greatest news ever. So, that's the third thing, just having a good understanding of witness through the book of Revelation. Firstly, and uh, almost lastly, penultimately, I would say this. I do believe it is legitimate to see things like deforestation. So in chapter 8, verse 7, we hear about a third of the forests being destroyed uh, and diminishing fish stock. In chapter 8, verse 8, we read about a third of the living creatures dying. I do believe it is legitimate to see things, um, th- those things there as those things. And I want to just explain why, help you understand what I'm saying, what I'm saying there. Um, part of these judgments in the book of Revelation are undoubtedly manifestations of the wrath of God. I'll speak to you about the wrath of God in a minute, right? But that's what they are. They are demonstrations of God's wrath, God's anger at unrepentant, sinful humanity. Um, now, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, it speaks about the main way that God shows his wrath before judgment day. So so on judgment day, there will be a final judgment where, where God's wrath will be expressed in a very explicit way. But before that, in the age that we live in, the age of salvation, where God's calling all to come to him, the Bible also says that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then it goes on to show how, and it says this, it talks about God giving people over to their sinful desires. So the main manifestation of God's wrath in this age is that he will give you over to the things. You, if you want to, I want to go and do that, and then God says, okay. That's the main manifestation of God's wrath in this age. He gives you over. Read it three times it talks about God giving you over to a debased mind. God giving you over to the lust of your heart. He gives you over. And the, and the context is, is it's God's wrath. It's important that we understand uh, that. we understand that. and so, But that fits with this idea, you see. So, for example, a trumpet blast from heaven denoting the destruction of a third of the forests right in the spirit realm, as a trumpet blast in heaven denoting the destruction of a third of the forests, can actually in real time be worked out as God giving greedy people over to their desires to destroy the planet in order to in order for short term gain. It's the same thing. Do you see that? Those two things can work together and be exactly the same thing, spiritually speaking. As long as we don't over interpret everything that we see going on and say exactly that is exactly that. So the deforestation of the Amazon in Brazil is the third trumpet, or whichever number it is. Do you see what? When you start doing that, and, 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 and the third trumpet is only in reference to that. what, What you start doing is you start drawing all of these signs in inevitably to the things that are happening in your day and in your part of the world. And then you come to the conclusion, of course, Jesus is going to come back. In, in our day, in our time, it has to happen because, look, deforestation, d- 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 diminishing fish stock. And, you, and so you develop this huge thing which every generation before us has developed. There have been Christians in every generation before us but after, since Jesus' time that have said, our generation is the generation when it's going to happen because look, 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 and look. And they've all been wrong. So the odds are that we would be wrong as well if we said it. Okay. Because you're just over-interpreting things and developing things, but there's too many blind spots to really, um, to really be able to do that. So as long as we don't do that, but if we do allow the book of Revelation to help us interpret what we see around us, you think, oh, okay, right, yeah, okay, there's, there's, a, there's a spiritual reality going on in these things. There's a sp- it's not just random, there's a spirituality. If I, can, if I can keep that lens, then that will help me very wisely live in two ways. Number one, it will keep a good urgency about our lives. So we're not dulled to the eternal realities and weighed down with either the worries or the pleasures of this age. Both those things can weigh you down. The worries, you know, I've got to pay the mortgage or pay my rent or this, that pressure. All these anxieties can weigh you down. But also just the kind of insatiable desire for pleasure can weigh you down. You end up just kind of spiritually just kind of dull as a result. And thank God he gives us all good things to enjoy. So um, this is not I'm kind of anti, you know, enjoying God's gifts. Not, not at all. But I'm just saying, you know, to keep sharp to eternal realities keeps us from getting weighed down in these things, firstly. And then I will say this as well. So The second thing it does is it helps us walk the tightrope of certain elements of life as a Christian without being falling into naivety. I'm going to give you two examples. To make, what's he talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. Number one, how we look after creation. It's really important that Christians care about creation. Why? Well, there's a few reasons why. This probably is not exhaustive, but a few reasons why. Number one, it's part of the original mandate. Given to Adam and Eve, you're to steward creation, you're to look after it, you're to take care of it, keep it, rule over it, but keep it, cultivate it. Original mandate for humans. Secondly, creation is sacred. It's not divine, so we don't worship it, but it's not just utilitarian. Oh, we just use it for whatever we like. It's sacred. It's God's. He delights in it. He delights in the work of his hands, and so there's a, we, we, we tremble, you know, because it's God's, it belongs to him, we're just stewards. So creation is sacred. Thirdly, we, it is wise and godly to think intergenerationally. So if we just use all we can and I'll blow my kids and my grandkids and what they're going to be left with, that is really ungodly and really unwise and really foolish and really immature. I mean, we mustn't think like that, it's really, really irresponsible. Um, and, fi- and, and, and then finally, it's a prophetic pointer. As we look after creation, we are pointing towards that, that day as we conserve and look after things. We're pointing towards that day where all of creation will be restored. Okay, So it's a prophetic thing. However, I'm not naive in this sense. It will all be destroyed. So I'm kept from a, a kind of naivety. It will all be conserved. No, it won't. The Bible is clear. It will be destroyed by fire. And then there will either be, either, however you interpret it, a brand new heavens and earth or a renewed heavens and earth. But all that is around us as we know it in this age will be judged by fire. And so it keeps me away from that kind of naivety. Do you understand what I'm saying? But I still care for creation, but I know why I do. It's not just some vague sort of sound bites about we want to look after things. You know, we, we, we know why. The second thing I would say is in terms of um, serving the poor. That's a really important one as well because I think... Why, why should Christians serve the poor? Well, number one, it demonstrates God's heart of compassion. God really cares about the poor. He really does care about those who are afflicted, vulnerable, marginalised. His heart really feels for them, and so it's reflection on his heart. Secondly, I am poor, and look how God treated me. Yeah, I'm poor, broken, wretched, miserable, sinful, and God has had massive mercy on me and grace, and so it's only right that I do the same thing. Thirdly, we're called to be a blessing, as I've said already. Fourthly, again, it's a prophetic pointer to that day when there'll be no more oppression, no more poverty, right? And yet I would say this, when I understand it, it it, it, it keeps me from the naivety of thinking that somehow looking after the poor will make poverty history, because it won't. Poverty will never be history. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor among you. Poverty at its root, the root cause of it, is sinful humanity. Oppression, injustice, greed, selfishness, um, hopelessness, all kinds of factors. There's so many factors that go on, all rooted in human sinfulness that leads to poverty, that no matter how much good we do, which we ought to, it won't make poverty history. And so again, I'm kept from naive soundbites. As unfashionable as it is to say what I'm saying. that's true. So, I know where I'm grounded. I know know what I do, what I do. So, I think it just makes us very, very wise if we interpret things through a revelation filter. And then finally, my final point. I want to say something on the wrath of God. Uh, I probably speak probably about the wrath of God a little bit more than it needs to be spoken about generally, probably. But I do so for good reason. Uh, And it's that many people are saying that that God isn't angry. And he is. So, because a lot of people are saying he's not... (laughs) I want to make it a point, of more than I normally would say, oh, yes, he is. Uh, and I want to talk about it for a little moment. Um, the the words, like, words like fury, inflict wrath, judgment, hell, are very common in the New Testament. In fact, I would say anger is key to a loving God. Anger is absolutely key to God being a God of love. He really is. Um, without anger, there, there would have been no abolition of the slave trade. If no one had said, what, what is going on here? If no one had been utterly indignant by what had been going on, there would have been no action. Because you see, when you really love, you get bothered by things. You know, it's not just You're not just jolly about everything. That isn't love. If everyone was jolly about everything, can you imagine? 200 girls abducted from school and forced to convert to radical Islam. Yay! No. Not at all. Well, can't we all just... Can't we just kind of be jolly about it? No. Drug-linked corruption and oppression leading to the deaths and disappearances of tens of thousands in Mexico in the last decade. Lol. No. no. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. The brutal oppression and functional kidnap of thousands of South Asian migrants on the building sites of Arabia to create impressive skyscrapers and stadiums for the rich. Do you think God's in a good mood about that? Families torn apart. Workers, when they get there, passports taken from them. Jesus. Gone there, to, gone there to, paid the price to leave their family, to go and try to provide for their family, and then they can't even get back to their family, and are not even paid what they told they were going to be paid. So that the rich can have a wonderful time. It's just disgusting. The ceaseless trafficking of thousands of daughters and sisters across nations for sex by bullies. I mean, God is angry. I tell you, God is furious. And the church ought to be furious. The church ought to be furious by this. And before I get all self-righteous as if, you know... I know the angry one he sees my selfishness he sees my idolatry he sees my self-interest and my self-worship and he's not too impressed with that either that's the reality okay so if this is the case what do people mean when they say things like God's in a good mood which by the way for my money is a very cheap and one-dimensional saying it's on the record here's what they mean they mean this and it is incredible this is incredible. They mean that the grace, the amount of grace and favor that God brings to us as we hide our lives in Jesus is so extraordinary. It is the amount of favor that God brings into our lives when we come to Jesus is so abounding, so powerful in its full, so over the top, so full and free, so generous and rich, so all encompassing, so unexpected and undeserving, that it, leave, it ought to leave us utterly lost for words. It's so never ending, it's so brand new every morning, it's so transforming, it's so renewing the grace that God brings to us in Jesus. That we find ourselves only in Christ under his mighty love. We find simply by coming to Jesus that all of that wrath and fury and judgment that was hanging over me like a sickle ready to drop. And it was. And it was righteous. And I deserved every bit of it. Because the Bible says that God is right in all of his judgments. He sees every angle. He knows not just what I did, but why I did it. He knows the the little secret meditations of my heart, the things that drive me to do that. And he sees it when it's all laid bare before him. And believe, trust me, that that sickle was hanging there waiting for me. It was the judgment of God and it would have been absolutely just for me to have faced that. And yet instead, what he's done is he's given his one and only son. Right? You think, that is God is not a God of half measures. He's not ambivalent. uh, This is what you deserve. This is what is coming. But I give you this. Not just a way out. It's a way in. It's not just a way out. A way out of judgment. It's a way into the heart of God. It's a way into the purposes, the family of God, where you go from being an enemy to being a son or a daughter. You go to being alienated to being brought right into the bosom of God, where he speaks promise and purpose and, and mercy and grace and joy and delight and celebration and affirmation and identity over you, day after day after day. And he picks you up and he says, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to bringing you right to glory. I'm committed to bringing you through to maturity. I am with you. I've given myself to you once and for all, so you know that i I love you. I put my spirit in you which testifies that you really are one of mine. My grace abounds to you. And, and the temptation can be that you, you, you can either take it lightly, which I'm sure many of us don't, but you can go the other way and you can just think, it's so awesome. The polite thing to do is to sort of stand back. Whereas God's saying, no, 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 the right thing to do is to run in. To receive abundant grace. It's one of my favourite verses in the whole Bible. Romans 5.17 says, says that we reign in life through receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. You want to reign in life as a Christian? Okay, one of you does. Right, here's what we're going to do. In order to reign in life, you need to receive the abundance of grace. So we not receive a trickle. You won't reign in life if you receive a trickle receive, which means you believe in your heart, God, your grace to me abounds. It's, a, it's, it's outrageous. It's, the, the, uh, the, it's, the Bible says that God's grace super abounds in Jesus. It's ridiculous. You think, why? Because all that Jesus deserves from the heart of God, as we come into Jesus, that is what is loaded down onto us. All, all the perfections of Jesus, all the righteousness, all the wonder, all the delight that Jesus has caused the heart of the Father, we come into by free gift that boom. So you live out of that, you're going to be able to overflow. You live out of that, you're going to know joy, you're going to know peace, you're going to know what it is to have room in your hearts for others. You're going to be liberated from self-obsession. Hallelujah. We need that in the West. We need that in this part of the world. Because we don't have a ton of things to worry about compared with a lot of the rest of the world. So we just go in on ourselves. And we get to see him and learn how to love. It's wonderful, isn't it? This is the gospel. This is the gospel. So uh, in Christ, there's no longer any room for the wrath of God because it was spent at the cross. It was spent. Jesus said it's finished and he he really, really meant it. He, He really meant it. What an amazing realm we've been brought into. Sons and daughters, friends of God, destined to reign with Him in a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? Amen. 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 So there will be pressure. We will face stuff, trumpets, bowls, all the rest of it. We're in it. But by God's grace, we'll be ex- experience the kingdom through it. Our prayers matter and change things. Pray. Understand that our witness won't always be popular but keep talking about Jesus. It's totally appropriate to interpret the things that go on in our age in light of what the Bible says, the, interp- the revelation stuff. Keep you, keep you urgent for the kingdom and keep you from being naive. And then finally, do not, do not whittle God down to a one-dimensional uh, uh, being who can only either be happy or angry. He has a very complex emotional life. He sees everything at the same time. (laughs) He sees everything at the same time. He's feeling a lot of things at the same time. Let's not reduce him. But let's, let's let his righteous anger burn in our hearts so we begin to really move in power, his power against injustice in his ways, kingdom ways. And the whole time let us be learning how to laugh and feast in his presence And the fullness of Jesus that abounds to us. Amen.